Hello and welcome to the fifth edition of Lockdown Culture with me, Ed Vasey, who is none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And hello, I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. Last week we talked a lot about books because we were celebrating A on Wi-Fi, so now we're switching our attention back to art. Now, our first interview is with the wonderful Andy Ellis from Art UK. Now, Art UK is something everyone should have heard of because its stated mission is to democratise access to art across the UK. It's something that, that's a mission that's very close to my heart, something I was always striving to do more of as culture minister. And weirdly, lockdown is one of those times where access to art has actually increased, arguably. It's one of those weird paradoxes. Now, Art UK is really an unbelievable charity. It's the online home for every single public art collection in the UK. It's an astonishing collaboration done on a shoestring of over 3,300 institutions and collection venues. And amazingly, they have digitized more than a quarter of a million artworks by over 46,000 artists. It really is, as I say, an absolutely mind-boggling achievement when you consider the resources or lack of them that they've had to put into this project. So, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Tell us all about how you got started. Thank you, Ed. Well, it goes back to 2003. And in actual fact, whilst we're now very much an, an online initiative, we started with a series of county-by-county county books of oil paintings in public ownership. And the rationale, really, behind what we have done is that, you know, arguably we own the greatest public art collection in the world, but at least 80% of that is in store or buildings without routine public access. And when we started the project, so much of that had not been photographed. So what was publicly owned was not publicly accessible. And what we've been trying to do is radically transform public access to the nation's art collection. So obviously we, st we started with oils. Um, we took the, the project online in 2011. So the book project really got left behind then really. And that was on the BBC site called Your Paintings. And then in 2016, we went independent on this and put up online Art UK. And that is what now effectively the, the online home for the the National Art Collection. So as you said, you know, over 3,000 collections are part of this project. It is probably, you know, one of the biggest ever arts partnerships, bringing together institutions, large and small. Obviously, major focus is on publicly owned art. But in addition to, you know, what you would think is publicly owned art, you know, we have... Um, um, paintings and artworks from Oxbridge colleges, from historic houses, from ch certain charities, and in due course, a few corporate collections will join the site. But the real focus is helping those public collections to, to make their artworks accessible to a global audience. And the thing is, the vast majority of public collections in the UK could not do this on their own. So what we're doing here is bringing together the small and the large on one 
single economic and efficient platform. Well, I, I didn't actually know, Andrew, that Art UK um, existed till Ed educated me, as he so likes to do. And, um, yes, it's, a, it's an ongoing <laughs> project to educate you, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what I hadn't realised is what an extraordinary amount of, of these works in libraries and town halls and hospitals and civic buildings up and down the country uh, about 80% of those aren't on public view. And now with this website, everyone can see it. And what I loved about it is it's so simple to use. So I live in West London and I just typed it into a search engine and I discovered this absolute treasure trove of paintings in my area, you know, stashed away in my local library. And it's one of those libraries really near to me that I must have been to dozens of times, you know, because it does all those things like baby sing-alongs once a week and all those things, you know. <laughs> and there on the first floor is this hidden stash of wonderful, wonderful paintings of our local area. You know, and I've always wondered what Hammersmith Broadway used to look like because it's so hideous now. And there's this fabulous painting there from 1790 of it. So it's been the most fantastic discovery and really exciting. And I know, Ed, you've been exploring some of the art in your old constituency of Wanted as well, haven't you? Yeah, well, that's right. Well, last week was um, International Museums Day. So Art UK invited really distinguished and impressive uh, and famous people, as well as myself, to curate <laughs> stuff uh, that might have a personal link. And um, being somebody who lacks any imagination at all, I decided I would choose my old constituency of Wantage. And what I thought might be a bit of a chore turned out to be an enormous amount of fun. Because what I discovered, first of all, it's a bit like rooting around in your old attic. In fact, it's very like rooting around in your old attic. Because I know my old constituency so well, I found lots of artwork, which paradoxically I didn't know existed, but each of which told a little story about my constituency. So, for example, I found a what is called the Dali Diver. It's a sort of surrealist sculpture of a person in an old-fashioned diving helmet built into a water trough in Farringdon in my constituency, which is a sort of homage to uh, the eccentric Lord Berners. Who, and so... Uh, a lot of people in the town got together and did, you know, commissioned eccentric art. But that is on, uh, you can find on the website. So that's in my curation. Then I found a work of art. I don't want to be rude. It's not particularly distinguished. It's of a Chinook helicopter by a man called Christopher Golds. But again, it comes from the Royal Military College in Shrivenham in my old constituency, which in effect has a sort of mini Imperial War Museum within its boundaries, which I've got to visit uh, as the MP and that kind of thing. So not only do you discover art you didn't know existed in your constituency, like a wonderful portrait of William Blackstone, the most famous resident, if you like, of Wallingford, he of Blackstone Laws, uh, but you also can actually put together a narrative of your local area. And I absolutely, thoroughly enjoyed the whole process, I've got to say. And it was a very fine curation, Ed. Very, very good indeed. Thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, I think what you should say, Andy, I mean, I think people will be interested is you can curate pretty much any way you want. If you want to do dogs, you could do dogs. If you want to do men with beards, you can do men with beards. If you want to pick a particular artist, you will find paintings by him or her in places you didn't know they were, for example, or you can do a geographical area. That That's exactly right. So so last week we we launched Curations, which allows anyone anywhere to curate their own digital exhibition and it, and it draws off the the quarter of a million 
artworks on the site. You can either just show the artworks as an, an album, um, or you can write an introduction and little bits of, of narrative um, about each artwork. So you can tell the story and link, as you would in a physical exhibition, link um, the artworks together in a, in, in a show. And so, and, and then you can decide whether you want to actually publish them, which, which you did, or you can, you can keep those private and just share, share with friends. So it's a, it's a very, very easy system to use. Part of what we're about is really trying to give the public more agency more greater sense of ownership over this just incredible art collection that they own. And this tool allow, allows you, allows you to, to do that. And it's, it's enormous fun. Now, you are, you are a charity. So I think yeah. it's important you tell a bit about uh, how you can donate to Art UK. And also, I think you've got a very glamorous patron, at least Charlotte tells me he's extremely glamorous, called Conrad Shaw. <laughs> talk for Charlotte's benefit. For Charlotte's benefit, please talk a bit about Conrad Jawcross. And for your benefit, please talk about raising money. To support us, it's it's very easy. There are lots of ways on on the site to 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 give us give us money. Um, there's a, our Art UK Citizen Scheme, which is from two pounds fifty a month, which allows people to become an Art UK citizen. Anyone can become an Art UK citizen, and that um, has a few benefits, but also you know very much brings the funders and supporters into the the Art UK family over the last few years. Uh, been having an annual patron. So in 2018, it was Cornelia Parker. Um, last year, it was Yinka Shonibare. And this year, it's the, the wonderful Conrad Shawcross, uh, the, the youngest RA, uh, an incredible sculptor. And for us, we thought it was really very appropriate in this year, the year in which we would expect to complete our big sculpture digitization project to have Conrad as our patron. Thank you so much, Andy, for your time. And uh, I'm thrilled to have a chance really to give Art UK the publicity it deserves. And as I say, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience of curating my own little local gallery and I'll do it again. Thank you, Ed. No, that was very right. I think it has to be one of our lockdown culture's top recommendations because while most of us are still at home, it's such a joy to use. And I spent already hours browsing it and finding art in all sorts of places like lighthouses and fire stations. And um, it's all over Britain, isn't it, Andy? From the Isle of Man to the Scottish Highlands and Islands, it's everywhere. It's, it's all over Britain. And, and what's quite interesting is actually only a third of the institutions on Art UK are museums. The rest of the art is in, you know, university collections, hospital collections, town halls, uh, hosp you know, lighthouses, as you say. Uh, so, yes, a huge amount to, to explore. Well, I'm really grateful to Ed for having introduced me to you. Um, and it's been a pleasure to meet you. And thank you very much indeed for being on Lockdown Culture. Great pleasure. Charlotte, Ed, thank you so much. So, obviously, this podcast is voice only, uh, so you can listen to it while you're taking your dog for a walk. But obviously, Charlotte and I can see each other when we <laughs> are recording this podcast, which is not a pretty sight for either of us, partly because of the background. <laughs> I'm in a sort of very bare, utilitarian uh, bedroom, and all Charlotte can really see, apart from my hairy face, is a light bulb. And I've got Charlotte's <laughs> behind her. But there is a solution at hand. It's called Neo, uh, which is spelt, of course, it's not spelt normally, it's spelt N. I I 
Io. And it is, they tell me, the world's foremost moving image art platform, enabling on-demand access to high-quality video and media art. But the point is that the clever people at Neo have now made available to you Neo Art Zoom backgrounds. And I have had a look at them, and they're quite fun. So I think uh, if you have a spare moment and you, in between listening to this podcast, you're on constant Zoom calls, I would take a little trip to neo.com and see if you can download a piece of digital art which will at least provide some interesting conversation in your incredibly dull, boring office Zoom meetings. Well, I want to know what you're putting in your bedroom. or your, I think you're in your daughter's bedroom, aren't you? What are you going to put there? Well, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't decided yet. There's just too much, too much to choose from. Because <laughs> I am quite bored of looking at it, I have to say. There are a collection of 40 Zoom backgrounds designed by professional artists. It's not well, bad, there you it? go. And I might be able to report next week that I'm looking at an entirely, I might see Ed Vasey in a whole yeah, new a light idea. next week. <laughs> why, don't we hold everyone, why don't we hold everyone in suspense and uh, they <laughs> force them to come back next week to hear what I've downloaded from Neo, free of charge, of course. So now we're going to turn from art to talk about dance. It's the first time we've covered it on Lockdown Culture. Uh, obviously, I used to be the Minister for Dancing, and uh, I've seen our next guests perform <laughs> along with uh, other co companies, but I'm we're concentrating today on our next guest. So we're going to introduce you now, enough faffing around, to the multiple award-winning Ballet Boys, which is spelt with a Z, of course. It's all male, as you would expect from the name. It's no ordinary ballet company. They've worked with numerous world-renowned choreographers, from Michael Clark, of course, to Matthew Bourne, and they're now working with Punch Trunks choreographer Maxine Doyle and the Chinese choreographer Zi Zin on their 20th anniversary stage show, Deluxe. It's hard to believe, given their toned torsos, that they've been at this for 20 years. It airs on BBC4 at 10.30 this Wednesday, So if you and, of course, if you miss it, it'll be on the iPlayer. The show was filmed during the opening performance of their spring tour before COVID-19 wreaked its havoc uh, and put the kibosh on everything else. Yes, now at one of Deluxe is called Bradley 418, and it's inspired by the lyrics of Kate Tempest, the spoken word performer we've already mentioned on this show. We love her. And it's about a successful young man struggling to connect with the world around him at 4.18 in the morning. And so there are six dancers representing his moods. And then the second act, Ripple, is a more lyrical piece inspired by memory and set to an electronic score. Now, I've actually seen a quick trailer of Deluxe, and knowing very little about ballet, as Ed never ceases to remind me, I absolutely loved it. Um, first, it immediately got rid of all my cliched ideas about what to expect from ballet, as there was a dancer executing some quite extraordinary moves, but dressed in a suit. So this is something for absolutely anyone. It's beautiful to watch, and I can guarantee you don't have to be a dance aficionado to enjoy it. Here to tell us all about it is one of the two founders of Ballet Boys himself, Michael Nunn. Michael, hello. 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 Thank you for having me on the show. It's, uh, it's wonderful to welcome you to the show. As I say, I've seen Ballet Boys uh, perform. It's something you founded 20 years ago with William Trevitt after leaving the Royal Ballet. Your aim, uh, one which obviously I massively support, is to make dance, contemporary dance, ballet more accessible uh, and to reach a wider audience. So tell us about the journey over the last 20 years since we're celebrating your anniversary. 
<laughs> 20 years. I know. It's, it, that's a little <laughs> bit crazy. Keep reminding you. <laughs> I know. I know. So, well, w- when we left the Royal Ballet, it was um, at a time of uh, turmoil, really, for the Royal Opera House because it, it was being renovated um, and all the artists had to leave for about three years, I think, the renovation took. So just before the shutdown, we realised this amazing building probably needed documenting. So we, we managed to scrape some cash together and bought a video camera. And basically, we just started videoing our life at, at the Royal Ballet Company. Really, as soon as we turned the camera on, things started to go very wrong at that point. And we had the inside track and all that. And we took the footage to Channel 4 and they produced a series. Um, and it was called Ballet Boys, which we hated. We hated the title Ballet Boys with a Z, obviously. Um, but at that time, uh, it was very fashionable. And we said, look, you can't call it that. What would you like to be called? And we said, well, we'd like to be called Mike and Billy's Royal Ballet, um, which the lawyers at the Royal Opera House had um, didn't really like. We couldn't really claim ownership over the Royal Opera House. They said, well, if you can come up with a better title by five o'clock, we'll change it. Otherwise, it's Ballet Boys. And of course, we didn't. And so Ballet Boys it was. The real aim, I suppose, was that when we started, contemporary dance wasn't popular at all it was only on the small stages um, apart from a couple of companies and not many people had access to it and a few people knew of us by then we thought well let's put some smaller more interesting works in larger scale venues so uh, that's really what we did and now we we tour extensively across the UK I think the last tour obviously before it was cancelled we had something like 37 dates which is extraordinary for contemporary dance Um, so a lot more people are seeing it and uh, the boys have got a, a big following now. Were you touring Deluxe? What, is, that, is that what you yeah, were we, touring? Yeah, we, we just started the show um, and we were one, in, one week into the tour and we saw the theatres being closed uh, down in Italy and then we heard the Paris Opera was going to close and we thought it's, it's really only a matter of time. Um, and we were in Leicester that particular evening, so we dashed back to London, um, picked up our camera and we managed to get one seat left in the theatre, and it's in the front row, slightly off centre. And we decided, well, why don't we just why don't we just shoot this show, as this twenty five pound ticket would have seen it, um, and that's what we did. And now that the show really has been touring internationally, uh, digitally, for the last few weeks. So it's been in Los Angeles, um, New York. It's going to Australia. Um, yeah, all over the world, really. I love it. I think it's very. I think it's very poetic that you, um, you know, you started life by grabbing a camera and filming around the Royal Opera House, and now you're celebrating the result of that camera odyssey with a kind of handheld camera in the front yeah. row <laughs> yeah. of the theatre, kind of both both ends sort of rough and ready. I hadn't realised that you were behind the sort of um, exposure of the toings and froings in the Royal Opera House, because of course there was another famous. Uh, documentary, I think, which featured Jeremy Isaac extensively as the Royal Opera House went into uh, meltdown. Yeah, that's correct. But um, we call you, because you're called the Ballet Boys, we keep talking about ballet when in fact you are in contemporary dance. And one thing I love about contemporary dance, uh, particularly when I go into it sad as well, is it is full, he says, deeply patronisingly as a middle-aged Tory boys. <laughs> um, it's, full of, it's full of young people. Uh, who are really engaged. I mean, it does have a passionate following. Do you find that everywhere you go in the country? Yeah, I mean, what we do find, I mean, sad as well as obviously you go to a theatre like that and uh, everybody's there, everybody, which is fantastic, a fantastic feeling. I mean, quite often we find touring around the country, the first couple of years, you'll get 100 people from that town that will come see contemporary dance. And you'll go back the next year and you'll get 150. And slowly it builds. And what these audiences expect is 
is something different. They don't want traditional. They can watch traditional ballet on the television. Um, we we try and explain what we're doing as well, not in a patronising way. So when you watch the show on, on the BBC, there are short films, two, three-minute films before each piece where we speak to the choreographer and find out exactly why they're making the piece, what their thoughts are. And it allows the audience to relax and enjoy the work because predominantly that's why you're watching it. It's not medicine. We're not trying to teach you anything. We want you to engage. I think exposing the process is essential. I think so many audiences come into these kind of venues totally intimidated. And to have someone basically talk them through what's going to happen is fantastic. It's my mother, really. I send her most of my work. And if she turns around and says, I haven't, I haven't got a clue what's going, tell me the story, then, then I know I'm going down the wrong path. Yeah. So can you tell us the story a bit about what we're going to see on Wednesday? God, that is a tricky question. So, yeah, so the first piece is by Maxine Doyle. And um, we were working in Shanghai last year. And Maxine has a show on there. Punch Drunk have a show on there called Sleep No More. And um, some of the, lots of the dancers went to see it. And we've known about the work for a long time. So when we were thinking about putting our 20th anniversary show together, we wanted to work with completely new people. As you said, I think in the intro, we've worked with, with lots of great choreographers, but we wanted something new. We wanted the company to be known for always trying to push it and, and try and find new talent. Um, and we'd never worked with, with Maxine before, so we invited her in. And um, she, it was a very unusual experience for the boys. She speaks a lot about the process. There's a lot of writing down. They're exploring a lot. They really have to open themselves. And really, it is... Uh, 4.18 in the morning, and these six men portray the different sides of this one Bradley character. And it's, it's, a, it's, quite, a, it's quite a slow journey. And the music is by Cassie Kanoshi. She was nominated for a Mercury Music Prize recently. And um, she wrote a fantastic jazz score. But trying to put uh, modern jazz with contemporary dance is, is difficult. And we didn't really know what it was going to be like until we got to the stage. And then the second half, Shishin is a choreographer we met in Shanghai and we got her on a plane and we flew back from China and she started to create the work. And what's extraordinary about her is that she is still a dancer. She's, she's just had a baby, but she's now back in the studio and she is absolutely phenomenal. So for the first week, the boys really just stood there open mouthed watching this, this, this woman perform in the studio for them. And hopefully, you know, if we're even 50% of the dancer she is, the, the, sh the show is amazing. You're a hero. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it this Wednesday. Um, it's on BBC4 at 10.30 and it's going to be available for another 28 days too, isn't it? It is, absolutely. So, yeah, I hope people enjoy it. And when we're back, if we're back, come and see it for real. Oh, thank you. We'd love to. Thank you so much, Michael. Take care. Thank you, thank guys. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. So we brought you Hay Festival last weekend, but as Ed will tell you, I can never get enough of books. And so I just want to make any keen readers out there aware of Lockdown Lit Fest. This is an initiative that's been set up by my friend Palesh Darve, who used to work at Hay. And he's set it up with Paul Lezard, the cultural commentator and broadcaster and a tech entrepreneur. My God, we could do with one of those on this show. Um, why Munyu? What's good about uh, Lockdown Litfest is that it's been created deliberately for your screen rather than a stage. So you can go in and out of the site whenever you feel like it. There's absolutely no pressure to stick to a webinar time or whatever. 
And they've managed to bring together a really impressive roster of authors. And also they're giving a platform to lesser known authors who might be struggling a bit during lockdown. So they've got some starry names like Robert Webb and Ian Rankin, and then Jonathan Bate, who's been very much in the cultural eye for his book, Radical Wordsworth, this year. They've got Joanne Harris, who wrote Chocolat, and many more. And they've even got Charles Spencer, late Princess Di's brother, talking about his book on Charles II to catch a king. Most are in conversation with Paul Blessard, and it's definitely worth a look. It's very easy to browse and navigate and not too overwhelming. So we highly recommend that to all keen readers out there like me. And now before we go, we've talked before, in fact, in our inaugural podcast about National Theatre Home. We just wanted to make sure you all know about their latest plays on YouTube. Uh, you can catch Gillian Anderson in a streetcar named Desire until Thursday. Uh, and then the Thursday after that is This House, of course, the brilliant James Graham. He's written this brilliant play, This House, which you've heard all about. You know, it's about the Labour government and trying to hold on to its majority when it had a majority of one. Uh, and he's also behind that famous uh, documentary, docudrama, where Benedict Cumberbatch played my really close personal friend, Dominic Cummings. Uh, and then... <laughs> Uh, you've got the Donmar Warehouse production of Coriolanus with Tom Hiddleston. And interestingly enough, I did bump into Tom Hiddleston at the Donmar Warehouse, not when he was in Coriolanus, but uh, he was obviously going to the theatre. And I went up to him and I said, hello, I know your mum, which I thought would be a brilliant introduction because I do know his mum. I'll tell you something else that's interesting, actually, while I'm on the subject of who I know, is that Ed Sheeran, my dad, Get this, my dad was the best man at Ed Sheeran's grandfather's wedding. Isn't that amazing? No. Yep. No. So anyway, I've gone a long <laughs> way from saying that Tom Hiddleston is in Coriolanus. That's about all we have time for this week after that long diversion, Ed, but um, very interesting though it was. But do please keep sending ideas to our email, lockdownculture at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And I'd just like to end by thanking our listeners from all over the world. And at risk of sounding like Joe Wicks with his shout-outs, we now have listeners all over the world, including Australia and now New Zealand. So we're absolutely delighted by that. Please keep listening. Goodbye. <laughs>